So um, good morning. Happy Father's Day to the fathers uh, and to the not fathers and to the everybody in between. This is um, a thing I, I read. I have no idea where it came from. So I'm just going to read it just like I did Mother's Day. I found this random thing. I can't credit the author because I can't find them. So anyway, this is what it says to all the fathers who stepped up, plugged in, held on, forged ahead, committed to, learned how, embraced all, encountered much, battled through, held tight, loved soft, never quit, backed off, let loose, braved courage, faced fears, prayed for, tightened up, loosened reins, remembered when, helped often, inspired much, led forward, stayed true, taught morals, found strength, said yes, said no, valued life, reasoned well, gave in, made time, had fun, helped out, played fair, took care, provided plenty, let go, stood up, swallowed pride, changed paths, took risks, dug deep, went easy, pushed forward, fought for, carried burdens, kept going, dreamed big, never quit, shed tears, forgave often, found patience, shined light, suffered pain, made dates, had faith, showed respect, wrote notes, held hands, stayed safe, wow. laughed loud, lost sleep, slowed down, tackled chores, tried hard, let win, choose right, opened up, gave grace, got involved, and gave your all. We honor you today. There is a lot that fathers do, and we are grateful for you all. So verse one uh, of the psalm today is, I think, the dream of every father, and it's uh, for sure the dream of our Heavenly Father. So it says, uh, how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters live together in peace. I'm sure my dad had that feeling when he looked at my brother and I. How good and pleasant it is when a brother and a sister will live together in peace and not push each other down the stairs. Um, some versions say harmony rather than peace. And harmony means that we're all singing our own tune and we are learning our own parts. But then together we make a whole and beautiful melody as one mm. takes the lead and then another and then another. Mm. Together we are better than the individual lines that we sing. So how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters live together in peace or harmony. Let's just read the whole psalm. Megan, can you just share that for us? And this is Psalm 133, and it's a song of David for those journeying to worship. How good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters live together in peace. It's like the finest oils poured down on the head, sweet smelling oils flowing down to cover the beard flowing down the beard of Aaron, flowing down the collar of his robe. It's like the gentle rain of Mount Hermon that falls on the hills of Zion. Yes, from this place, the Eternal spoke the command. From there, he gave his blessing, life forever. How good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters live together in peace. As I was looking at this psalm this week, the three words that struck out to me is, it is like. And uh, David puts a few things. He puts the scent of sweet smelling oils. And he, he says the gentle rain. So what is it like for you when brothers and sisters live together in peace? What is it like for you? I'm going to stop talking so you can actually have a quiet reflect on that. What does it smell like? What does it sound like? What does it look like? What is it like when brothers and sisters live together in peace?
So if you have a if you have a thought or something that you want to share, put it in the chat right now. And Karen, what was yours? She suddenly she, next to me. She went, "Oh, I've got a thing." So <laughs> your turn. Um, I must remember not to think out loud. Um, <laughs> it was uh, for me. Uh, spring is my favorite season, and it would be a perfect spring day where the temperature is just lovely for me, uh, with the scent of spring blossom and a gentle breeze. Nice. So if you have any if you have any thoughts that you want to put into the chat, feel free to do that. And I'm just going to read it one more time. How good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters live together in peace. It is like the finest oils poured on the head, sweet smelling oils flowing down to cover the beard, flowing down the beard of Aaron, flowing down the collar of his robe. It is like the gentle rain of Mount Hermon that falls on the hills of Zion. Yes, from this place, the Eternal spoke the command. From there, he gave his blessing. Life forever. Father God, help us to find the places of peace. Remind us that they are there and help us to work to make that so. That we would live in a place where brothers and sisters live together in peace. This Father's Day, teach us to live in harmony. Teach us to live in peace with our brothers and sisters, with all of humankind. Make us in every way beautiful as you are beautiful. May we love each other the way that you do. May we reflect your love for all. Amen. Yes, yeah, so have a look at have a look in the chat. There are some uh, there are some good things there. The sound of laughter, the smell of good food, the sight of so many faces together. Together is my favorite. Yes, seeing and hearing my friends enjoying each other's company, living with brothers in peace, uh, the complete absence of the weight of relational stress. Mm, nice. Mm. Those sound like peace. Everyone having a voice and nobody having to hide. Yes. And while we are gathered together, the thing that we can do together, even though we can't sing together, which is much as we'd love to. Oh, wait, Steve, what's happening on July 18th? We're singing. Together. <laughs> together. For the first time in 15 months down in Matsby Pub. So, uh, yeah, be there. Looking we are getting the band back together. <laughs> so exciting. I was hoping he'd say we're getting the band back together. But you should have told me that's what I should have prompted you know? him. We're getting the um, band back together. But we can't sing together this morning because Zoom is a poopy head in that department. So we can take communion together. So if you have uh, juice, wine, chocolate milk, coffee, a liquid of some kind, we're going to drink and we're going to eat. Um, bread and wine is the traditional because that's what Jesus shared with his brothers and his brothers that day and his sisters I guess they were at the table too just not mentioned uh so let's share this together so Jesus on the night that you were betrayed you took the bread and you broke it and you gave it to your brothers and sisters and said eat this in remembrance of me every time you eat this remember me and every time we eat this we are remembered we are put back together as being connected to Jesus so let's be connected with him this morning let's eat And then after supper, gluten-free breads are really hard to go, by the way. Oh yeah, I'm trying to do it without any 
liquid um <laughs> after supper he took the cup and he passed it around to his friends and he said drink this in remembrance of me this is the blood of the new covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins mm. and god we come this morning and we just offer up all of the of who we are to you today mm. to do whatever it is you want mm. to do with us mm. thank you for your mercy thank you for your love thank you for your grace amen God, I thank you for feeding us. I thank you for remembering us as we remember you. Thank you for putting us back together. Thank you for connecting us and creating community. Thank you, God, that you are the heart of that. Jesus, be at the center of everything that happens today. And uh, I pray for Nicole and Karina as they uh, weave the rest of this morning together for us, that you would speak life to them and through them. Um, and that your kingdom would come here this morning and your will be done as it is in heaven. Amen. Hey, everybody, welcome here. This is an exciting morning. Um, so we're here with Nicole, who's going to show up on the screen any moment. Nicole Forbes, she is a really fantastic human friend of mine. She lives in Manitoba. She's a friend of our church, too. She's been a part of uh, different events. She's spoken before last year. This time, she led us through a really special communion service. Um, today is uh, Indigenous Peoples Day in Canada. And so um, part of the month that we set aside as well. And we just thought it would be great to do an AMA and ask me anything. And we thought this because Nicole offered it. And we are so lucky for that. Um, she lives in Manitoba with her family, shares a proud heritage of the Red River Métis people. Um, if you didn't get a chance on the email that has the link, we have with links to worship songs. Nicole chose those for us this morning. And um, there is just a bunch of music there that is precious to her. And um, it's, it's great. I loved it. So if you get a chance, take a listen. And um, what else can I say here before I pass over to Nicole? Um, basically, when, when we are curious about something, um, that is different from us. When we come with that posture of curiosity, we learn and we grow. When we notice our differences, we learn and we grow. So this morning, I thought before we got started, I wanted to just set up a few things. So if you're from the majority culture, which basically means if you are straight and if you are white, um, and uh, that, that like people that have the easiest access to flourishing, basically, it's really generally a good practice for us to do our own work. We Google our own things. We read and find resources that can help answer our questions um, without expecting a person that's part of a marginalized group to do the heavy lifting. However, in the context of relationship, when our friends that have a non-majority experience offer to share with us, well, it's kind of like Gus from uh, My Big Fat Greek Wedding says, Today is your lucky day. So that is, today is our lucky day. And I just thought um, I would give a couple of definitions that may help us keep up to speed because um, definitions are helpful. So, and the other thing to know is Nicole is going to be answering some of the questions that you put in and we'll be talking about some things and there will be resources mentioned. We are going to have a stellar Indigenous 
resource page, much like we do on our LGBTQ plus resource page on our church website. So do take some time, that'll be up in the next week or so, to avail yourself of that so you don't have to furiously try and write all the titles or, or websites down as we go along. Um, you might hear the term colonizer, colonizing, colonization. Basically, um, that's when one group sends a group of settlers to a place to establish control over it, whether that's political, religious, economic, cultural. Um, and sometimes we hear those words and we're like, oh, I don't like how that sounds. And that's probably okay that we don't like how that sounds. It's maybe not the best plan to try and take control over other places, but it is part of our heritage and part of our history. And so it's good to sit with that. Um, a settler is a person who moves with a group of others to a new country or area, invited or uninvited. It's just, that's what a settler is. And then um, I think, uh, you know, if we, if you, if we talk about racism or racial inequality or things like that, it's when one racial group of ideas is elevated over another one or policies that benefit one group over another one. And then the other phrase that I think we'll be returning to possibly, um, this is just going to be a conversation. So it came up when we were planning. It may or may not came, come up today, but just the, the idea that we're equal in our differences. And we're going to be exploring some of those differences this morning, whether that's cultural, religious, family, gender. Um, basically, our egos thrive on making difference the enemy. But when we know that we're equal in our differences, that a way of being isn't elevated over another, but just different, that can really help in these conversations to keep it us open and learning. And before I pass it over to Nicole, I just, I read this quote, um, it was actually in the Archway uh, Canada newsfeed this morning, and it was from Emily Henry, who is an Indigenous woman in the area here, and it said, she said, I read that if a child was young enough to go to residential school today, children of the same age can learn about it. And I believe this to be true. For where there is no education, assumptions fill the gap. And that's what this AME is about. We are about educating and learning so that we don't have assumptions and ignorance fill the gaps in what we don't know. So with that, Nicole, I'm going to hand it over for you, for you to introduce things and we'll get things started. So go for it, Nicole. Hey, um, starting these conversations can feel so awkward. And I just want to let you guys know that as a Métis person, in case you're not aware of what Métis means, um, I come from both Indigenous and settler backgrounds. Um, Métis people, by definition, were the fruit of the Hudson's Bay Company coming here and starting trade and um, and whatnot. So there, people came over in my own family story. Um, we have a man named Peter Curtin who came from Scotland to um, Canada, which wasn't really Canada yet, but came to these lands um, as an experimental farmer with the Hudson's Bay Company. He came with his wife and his kids and most of his sons married Indigenous women um, as they grew, and their kids continued to marry Métis uh, women and men or in full Indigenous people. So we are 
right back from the beginning of time, we are mixed. And so as Métis people, our culture emerged as a blending of traditional indigenous practices and um, Scottish Celtic roots. So that's where if you watch the videos, the first one, you saw some really authentic Métis jigging. That is the hub of who we are. And especially in my family growing up, um, my grandfather was orphaned at a young age, but he retained his connection to some of these cultural things like music and dance and sarcasm. Um, <laughs> so we, um, we came out of that. So without getting to the politics of things, Métis isn't just any mixed Indigenous people. It is specifically people who were mixed in the 1800s and their family line continued to come down that way. In Manitoba, you have to, if you want to become a registered Métis member, you have to prove that your family was connected to the Métis culture um, back when Louis Riel uh, formed his um, provisional government, which brought Manitoba into um, the Canadian landscape. That's for your history lesson, I could go on with that, but that's in the crux how here in Manitoba it's set up. Um, the leaders of the Métis community here wishes it was as cut and dry in other places. Because what happens is we have a lot of people claiming Métis heritage that are not, and they're mixed, which is different, and they need to value that piece of themselves. But as Métis people, the government recognizes us as our own Indigenous nation, which we are. So we come in every shade you can imagine. I have ongoing jokes with my cousins. I am on the very white scale of <laughs> the colors. We have a picture of all of, I have... Um, on my mom's side of the family, I've got 28 cousins and we all know each other, like, well, we're in each other's lives. And so they were all at my wedding and we're all lined up for group picture and I look like Casper in the middle. I'm very white and I'm wearing this giant white dress and everyone's lovely shades of cinnamon around me. It's it's funny and we joke about it. But um, that's one of the stereotypes I would love to see people embrace is that not all of us are majestic long flowing black hair standing on the prairies the wind whipping through while colors of the wind is playing in the background that is not a common indigenous experience um we are mothers and fathers and lawyers and doctors and teachers and artists and brothers and sisters and we are all cousins um and so on a totally side random note i would love to see more representation of indigenous people not majestic on the prairies, but in everyday life and have them fill roles on on TV and movie that don't necessarily call for an Indigenous person, but there they are. And ones that call for Indigenous people to have them look more representative of all of us. Um, side note, that was for free. Um, <laughs> so well, where, what, I think it's a great a great point, though, because very often we get this idea that there's like, an indigenous response or an indigenous identity but when in fact it's multiple nations and there's multiple just features and expressions and ideas and it is as diverse as people are everywhere right i think that is important for us to remember there isn't a singular thought or way of being the only pan indigenous experience that there is is that we are marginalized and oppressed. Other than that, it is 
our cultures, our nations are all very different. And so when we approach this conversation, I really want you to know that I am speaking from the context of being a Métis person in Winnipeg on the prairies with the experience of um, most of my fully Indigenous relatives come from a variety of Cree, like Swampy Cree and Plains Cree. Um, but here we have Ojibwe. People are just as plentiful. And if you lived here, you know there's a little bit of a rivalry between the Cree and Ojibwe and their beautiful curly locks and their better reserves, actually. <laughs> but we are all so diverse. And so I'm very blessed to have friends who come from Musqueam Nation and and have been able to share their art and their stories with me, but I do not speak for them. Um, this is just my take. And for some of these questions, I've had to Google and get the right words and stuff too. So also just because we're Indigenous and we love the experience, we don't always know all the things. So thank you for asking and giving me the opportunity to to break things down. And I'm excited to give Karina a list of resources so you guys know safe places to start digging. Because I think, as her and I were talking, that's one of the stumbling blocks for people who are not Indigenous is they want reliable information and they want to know that they're getting their answers from people who know what they're talking about. And so I do have a couple of websites that are actually really good if you're looking for topical things like trying to understand the difference between like hereditary chiefs and and elected and they break it down really, really well. So I'll have all that on that paper later on. Great. So Karina, what topic do we want to start with? So we kind of, with the different questions we got, we kind of figured there were kind of four that led into five categories. We have like treaty questions, social questions, cultural questions, and then spiritual questions, which kind of we felt took us into like allyship um, questions as well. So I think we were going to start with the with treaty questions, which has to do with things like um, the difference between status and non-status, the difference between hereditary and elected chiefs, the the ways that maybe like does treaty affect the way people marry if they marry in and out of indigenous culture. Um, how does how does that work? So can you? I don't know if that's if that's too big of an umbrella or just th those were those are some like treaty ish questions that that came up and also questions about like in BC we technically have no treaties which is why very often when we acknowledge land it's good to say that we're on unceded territory which is part of that like there aren't previous existing treaties how does that affect things versus the rest of Canada um, those kind of questions. So give us just, uh, you know, in that, in, in whatever order you feel like answering um, about treaty questions. And then that kind of, I think, leads us into social structure questions as well. Okay. So once upon a time, some English dudes got a hold of a Bible and started reading. And they got to the part where they talked about dominion and they loved it. So they got on boats and came over here. They didn't read any further about harmony and loving your brothers and sisters and treating others as you would like to be treated and loving the marginalized. They just hung on to that dominion piece and decided to go out and conquer. So when they came here, 
they realized that this wasn't an empty land or vacant land. There were brown people everywhere. So let's make rules for those brown people to follow so that we can actually do as God's word said and have dominion. So they wrote the Indian Act. Um, and that is the crux of this whole conversation is that in Canada, as an Indigenous person, our whole history and experience is framed by the Indian Act. Um, and I think it was written in 1862 or something like that. I'm not good with the numbers, but it, it was, it's been around for a long time and it's been bad since the start. Um, there, so when we start talking about treaties and not treaties and status and whatever, all of those rules are written out in the Indian Act. And it's an enormous, bulky document to dive into. So what I'm going to show you right off the hop is this book. It's called 21 Things You May Not Know About the Indian Act. If you're only going to buy one book to sort of understand what's happening with Indigenous people, this is what I will tell you where I will tell you to start. It's written by Bob Joseph. His dad is a hereditary chief and a brilliant man who is part of the architect of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And um, the wisdom obviously has trickled down because this is an excellent uh, book that outlines everything. Um, so with the Indian Act, they set up rules about who's, who is Indigenous and who's not. So that's where you get your status and non-status. Pre-contact, that wasn't even a thing. You were Indigenous if you were born into the community or if you were adopted into the community. And that was just the way it is. With contact and colonization came this need to document, register, and track Indigenous people. And so they made up all of these actually really complicated rules about who can be status and who cannot be. And up until 1985, women who married outside of, like if, they, if status women married non-status men, they lost their status. And the government gave a really nice term for it to make it sound really like lucky for you. It's called enfranchisement. And I'm saying it wrong, I'm sure. It's enfranchisement. Opposite of disenfranchisement, it's, so you're being welcomed into Canada, basically, because you've done the right thing and married a white dude. Um, but then you've lost all your rights and all of your claims and all of the fiduciary responsibility that the government had towards you and your children. Most indigenous cultures were matriarchal. And so when colonization happened, it came from a patriarchal point of view. And so um, traditionally, like Cree and Ojibwe women were the owners of the property. So if you had a teepee, if you had horses, if you had blankets, if you anything you owned actually was a possession of the woman. And the man benefited from connecting well <laughs> and uh, taking care of his woman. And so when Canada was established, they made rules that said women couldn't own property. And so it was exactly opposite of what Indigenous communities were used to. And... Um, so women lost their status if they married non-Indigenous men. You could lose your status if you decided to play by colonization rules and go to school and get a degree. So if you became a doctor, lawyer, any type of profession, you uh, were enfranchised into the country, lost your status. Um, was that Bell, my seven minutes on this topic? Uh, no, I think I think we, we have okay. one, one, one more thing. Go for it. Um, I'm just looking down here. Uh, uh, so elected chiefs also became part of this um, 
Indian Act. So before then, um, chiefs were hereditary, mostly down the mother's line. Um, that differs in some nations, uh, but by and large, it was a matriarchal. So um, if I was the daughter of a chief, my child would become the next chief. Um, but the colonizers didn't know what to do with that system, and they wanted to in introduce um, democracy because that was a civilized way to go. And so they introduced band council councils and chiefs that had to be elected. And it was actually a hot mess at the beginning because it was so foreign for our way, but they wouldn't, the, those writing the treaties and those government officials in the territories that were trying to gain land and control, um, they wouldn't work with someone who wasn't elected. And so it began a really unhealthy system of governance within most indigenous communities um, because the elected people were given favors by the government to sway their people. And so there's a lot of um, generational garbage connected with that on a lot of reserves, not all reserves. Some have really um, worked hard to fight their way back to a more traditional way of being, but a lot of them are still slogging through uh, a big mess. And what I, what I want to say on this topic of, of, uh, the Indian Act in this context is there is a myth that Indigenous people get a free ride from the government um, if their status, and that's not true. What the government has is a fiduciary responsibility at the federal level towards Indigenous people. So all the things we get through, like our healthcare, our education, all that comes up to us at a provincial and civic level, the federal government took responsibility for doing that with Indigenous people, um, and they do it very, very poorly. And so as a Canadian, all of us have a right to certain things, but the things that Indigenous people are given on reserve and even in urban settings is far less than what the average Canadian gets. Even, and there's a whole another whole line about property ownership and employment and taxes that this book actually lines out really, really well for you. But it is a myth that Indigenous people get a free ride in our country. We don't. We get the raw end of the deal most of the time. I think that's those are important um, things for us to challenge. I think whenever, whenever we hear things that are like somebody is getting off scot free or so, like I think those are things always worth exploring a little deeper and from the perspective of people that are actually experiencing those things. Like it's not just like anybody can walk into a university and say, hey, I have Indigenous heritage, let me go for free. Like that's, that doesn't happen in that way. And and just other other things like that. They pay tax when they buy their groceries. They, and it's really, really complicated for, for that, um, any, any remuneration or things like that to happen outside of that. So yeah, it is, it is, Maybe not what we thought it was. No, and I think what you need to understand too is when you're talking about land, especially reserve land, that is owned by the government, but they allow Indigenous people to live there. They don't own it. And so when Indigenous people try to build houses, they can't own their own homes and they can't do improvements to them. It all has to go through the Bandit Council office. So what people do often, and I know, I personally know people who have done this, who live on a reserve, 
but they get a job off reserve and they start earning money. So they want to buy land adjacent to the reserve. So they stay close to the community. They still have to pay land transfer tax. They still have to jump through all the hoops that everyone else does when they're purchasing. And then what has happened too, is the government can come in and take any part of reserve land for government use. So if they need like a right of way for a road, or if they need um, for uh, utilities to come through or whatever, they can, change the shape and size and amount of land any reserve has. There's one just north of um, Man- or Winnipeg here, but they were on this land for generations. And then we had an influx of uh, immigrants coming in that were farming and the government had promised them land. So they moved that reserve almost 200 kilometers. So they, the burial grounds were moved, not moved, but were abandoned. The sacred land that they had lived on and worked on and had family on for generations they had to up and move 200 kilometers away and that land was given. So I just want to pause in that moment and ask for us to just sit with that truth. Cause many of us own our homes, right? We, many of us, um, that's just part of like what you do, right? Like you buy your house, you build it, you improve it, you renovate it. Maybe, we just need to sit with that knowing that like that somebody could just come up to you today and say, I want a road to go through your backyard. I'm relocating you. And you're like, but I don't, what? No, I like, this is where I, this is where I live. This is where my family comes for Thanksgiving. This is where like my church is just down the road and what that would do to have someone not a part of your community just say I looked at a map and said I want it to go here like that where I have to build a dam to generate power your house is going to be flooded sorry yeah you have three years in the hotel to figure your life out and that happens in Manitoba actually a lot yeah you have pipeline issues out there where they're trying to cut through indigenous land without meaningful consultation and and I think that's that's a sticking point for people who don't live that experience is that it's it's our home and we need to be involved in the conversation about what happens to it and um, we're not and I think too I, I remember overhearing people talking about the consultation process and it's like they were all for consultation but really in the end it was like so that it can happen but like a true consultation is a conversation where maybe it ends up not happening because we realize we need to value something differently and you know that anyways let's um so i could like hours just on this yeah because it's the security of our home and, and i mean as someone who just lost their house in a fire i have a different perspective of what the security of your home is yeah than i did before and i think that until your home is at risk it's hard to understand how unsettling that is and still now indigenous people in on every reserve they live with the knowing that their home is always at risk the government can make a decision can change their mind can reroute things not to not even to begin to talk about the remote places where building supplies are hard to get so the estimate right now is there's 20 to 30,000 fewer homes on reserves than are needed. So we have multiple families jamming into small spaces 
or living in tents when they can. Um, it's unhealthy. And then, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to rant. So we're going to move on. If you want to hear my rant, we'll do that another day. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's, it hurts me to the core that there are such terrible stereotypes about indigenous people on reserves when you have no idea the circumstances that they have to survive in. Yeah. And that's what, what gets me going. I think you've, you've touched on something that I think it's really important for us. To, like you said, you have a different perspective now that you've experienced it, which is, is good. And yet I want to challenge our community mm-hmm. to just start believing people that have a different experience. Because it shouldn't take us being forced off our home to understand what that's like for someone to be forced off her home. It shouldn't take our children being taken from us to understand the depth of trauma that that would inflict on a community. It should, like, we want to because we want to imagine that everything is okay, but can we just start believing what we're hearing from Indigenous communities, from Indigenous Métis and Inuit people about what their lived experience is? And even if it just sounds offensive and like how could that be i think that canadians one of the difficulties of being a canadian is we have this perception that we are peaceful loving and nice and that we're not really like we're not racist like other countries just a little north of us are racist, or a little south of us sorry are racist and we're not we're not like that the thing is guys we're just like canadian about it (laughs) <laughs> which means we're just a lot in your face about it. And so sometimes I think that that discomfort is more jarring because we have this perception of ourselves that is like, but we're not like that. We are, and we need to really sit in that place of discomfort of truth so that we can move to reconciliation, which is not the same as comfort but it is a place of redemption and wholeness. I'm going to say that reconciliation is a long way off still. We can't skip the truth part. And honestly, if you hear an Indigenous person talking about their experience, it's true. Like they've lived it. So if you're reading the TRC or you're reading the report from the Murdered and Missing Indigenous Women and Girls Commission, believe what is said there because it is true. We always like, this is, I'm trying to figure out how to say this. Because I'm Métis, I'm Indigenous and I'm settler and I live in that tension all the time. And I've been colonized because that was the plan from the beginning. And so I have to challenge my own perceptions all the time. Yeah. I have to remove that settler mentality of oh it can't be that bad or maybe they're exaggerating or or whatever other racist undertones that were built into the way our system functions and it has affected me I have to as an indigenous person go no 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 they're speaking the truth and Mm -hmm. I I don't have to ask them to qualify it I just have to hear it cool yes that's good okay let's move on to maybe a couple of cultural questions if we can um these might be a little quicker. Can you, I, you've kind of touched on like, is Métis a First Nation or a description? I think depends on where you live and who you ask, right? Um, 
And then we've got questions about um, on uh, the question of two spirit and how that works in indigenous culture and also cultural questions of like, how do we um, as settlers, if we are involved in like the foster care system or things like that, how how do we support people if we're care if people are caring for indigenous children or if in in that way? So can is go. Okay, so uh, Métis is not First Nation. First Nation is. Um, it started off being called Indians because Columbus didn't know where it was. Then they're called natives. Then they're called aboriginals. Now they're indigenous. Those first nations encompasses that. And I would encourage you to use the terms first nation or indigenous when you're speaking about indigenous people, all of those other terms carry a lot of junk with them. So, um, yeah, so First Nations would be that either honors or officer, very full or mixed, um, whatever. Like you have here, like I said, we have Ojibwe, Cree, like there's all whatever. Dakota, Sioux, Lakota. I can hop along the prairies pretty far, but once I get <laughs> five foot, once I get past the mountains, I don't know what's out there um, right. as well. But it's that. It's those people that are are um, full or mixed. Métis is a separate entity of recognized Indigenous people, as are Inuit. And I also want to point out too quickly that Métis and Inuit don't have treaties. We are not covered under any type of treaty. Um, the treaty asks for regulation and that's for go to status, non-status. So we're also kind of free-floating with unseated people too. Sure. Um, cool. So... Two-spirit, um, give us a 30-second a uh, concept and maybe a... Um, I'm going to have a link. Too. I'm going to have a link specifically about Two-spirit for you guys to go to. Um, it's eight misconceptions, things, uh, eight misconceptions people need to address about Two-spirit people. In a nutshell, um, being Two-spirit has nothing to do with um, your sexual attraction. It has to do with your internal gender meter and it is um this is also something that's been deeply affected by colonization where there was this role and it was spiritual and it was a community role for people of two spirit which meant that they resided in a space with both male and female internally and they were really instrumental in the wellness of the community they were um people who served their community in a counseling spiritual upholding kind of way Currently, um, there's a lot of conversation within Indigenous communities and the queer community here about what does Two-Spirit mean. The term Two-Spirited actually was established during a conference here in Winnipeg uh, in the 90s, I believe. Okay. But the Two-Spirit identity was back pre-contact. And so it has nothing to do with being gay. It's a It's a spiritual commitment to your community and it can't like non-indigenous people cannot be two-spirit it's it's fully an indigenous identity great and you've got further resources for that on that so that's great yeah i'll um, send that along. and then like i don't know if we put this question in allyship or cultural or what but when it comes to 
like the foster care system when it comes how 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 do we understand ourselves in that context yeah this is between culture and allyship um the short answer is i wish indigenous kids were not in white families but this is the way it is and i don't think you're doing a bad thing if you're a white family that has an indigenous kid i think that you're giving them a loving stable home and that's first priority um what I would challenge and encourage you to do is to learn and not just like going to a powwow or ceremony, but like learn the stereotypes, the social structures, the challenges, the identity issues that those kids face. Um, I, our kids have always been friends with kids in care. We had a foster daughter for a number of years who was, um, her mama's status, so she could have been also. Um, there's a lot of kids in care who don't know who their parents are, don't know who their fathers are, and so they have a really hard time, like they struggle with embracing their Indigenous identity. Um, and we've seen this time and time again. And the best thing you can do with those kids is introduce stereotypes to them that are not stereotypes, but I guess images to them that are opposite of the stereotypes that are here because they're going to hear the worst parts of their heritage from media, from news, from mouthy kids in school. What you need to do is counterbalance that and you need to get them into contact with caring indigenous adults who can teach them to have pride in their, their skin tone, in their culture, in their heritage, in their hair, They need to be taught these things and they need to be uplifted in these things. Um, It just, we have some indigenous kids in our circle of love in our family that don't know how beautiful and strong they are, how gifted and valued they are because these are not messages they get not through CFS and not through um, non-Indigenous communities. So it's really important that you begin to build in that value and start having books and movies and conversations. Turn off the news when they're doing crappy stories about Indigenous people. Um, Try to marinate them in the goodness that Creator made them just this way on purpose. Um, Great. They were meant to be. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, what I'm hearing you talk about is is the practice of not, there is plenty of trauma that we need to understand and that we need to like sit with, but Indigenous people are more than traumatized people. And so it's important that we expose and elevate Indigenous joy and Indigenous beauty and Indigenous ingenuity and, and things like that. For sure. And I think just an easy place to start is there's yearly awards called the Inspired Awards, and they celebrate Indigenous people in every facet. I was lucky enough to be at one of their ceremonies a couple years ago here, and it was the most incredible, uplifting, inspiring place I have been. Um, So I would, I'll I'll send a link to their website. They have profiles of people in every walk of life who are First Nation, Métis, and Inuit, who are doing amazing things in part of their community. 
Fantastic. Tell those stories. That's great. Okay, so um, we have in BC recently, I think the one one last thing before we get into the last part, um, where what is your perspective as we are having these moments of reckoning of finding these mass graves and things like that in across Canada, which we've been told by Indigenous people have existed. So it's not, on one hand, let's not spend too much time being shocked about it because it's actually not new information, but we're having to reckon with the truth of it. Um, how there, there was, I, I'm trying to think of a way to encapsulate this one question. Um, how like with Indigenous people of faith, like in, people who would identify as Christian in the Indigenous community or um, how, how, how do you see that playing out or what is a role that we can, I'm not even sure what to ask, but I think you have the yeah. question. You. I read that question. Yeah. I read that question and um, I marvel at the faith of some of our elders here um, because they came to faith in a residential school and their ability to love God through a Western religion context after all that's happened to them is astonishing to me. And they've taught me a lot about grace and forgiveness and about loving a flawed humanity that I did not, I just didn't realize humans were capable of <laughs> honestly. And I see it in them all the time. Um, each indigenous person has to sort out for themselves where they fall in the reconciliation cycle and what, what they're willing to be involved in and what they're not, what is their responsibility and what is not. And I don't think, people outside of the Indigenous community or actually even other Indigenous people can tell you what that role is. Um, those, those people of faith have lived with the knowledge of murdered and missing children from their own schools their whole lives. This is not a shock or a discovery. It's an uncovering of truth. Mm -hmm. And I know, and if you, are not part of the community and you, and perhaps you didn't hear all the testimony with the TRC. This is shocking and it's hard to take. Um, it's hard to take for us too, but it's not shocking. It's um, in some ways a validation of a truth that we have lived with. And it still is happening. Um, Brandon, Manitoba is an hour and a half away. And last weekend, my husband and I drove out there and stood on the grounds of the school site where 104 children were detected about a week after the Kamloops uncovering. Um, I would place money on every single residential school site having unmarked yeah. graves. Yeah. And not kids that just died of tuberculosis, but children who were hidden because of the sin of their death. Yeah. And, um, so for Indigenous people of faith, they have to figure out how that works for them. And I don't think it's fair for us to project on them that they should be any type of bridge or connection 
to reconciliation because they're working out their own salvation in the midst of trauma also. Mm-hmm. I think um, if they're willing to speak and if they're willing to guide and share, darn well, we better open our ears because they they are speaking truth and they are bringing us into relationship. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Thank you for that. Good. I wonder if you could share what have been some healing spiritual practices that you have discovered um, as you have journeyed into understanding your Métis faith. And I think this is a place where I have experienced, um, it's been, I've been so pleased to be able to let go of so many fears and ignorance that I grew up with. And, and so um, I, I just, I love, I love it when you share the, the things that you've learned and the practices that you have. And maybe if you can just share some of that with us. And then I think um, we'll probably go into just opening up Q&R to any further questions that have come, come after that as, as we kind of discuss how we move forward, how we move forward together. Okay. And we'll loop back around to some allyship stuff too after, but the, um, I grew up in a very Pentecostal context and, um, that's why I know salty and music machine. Um, (laughs) so, um, what has been so freeing to me is the recognition of, uh, how we have boxed God into a really westernized interpretation of worship and being able to blow the sides off of that box and realize that um, we don't call him creator for nothing. Like there's creativity involved in God. And when does a creator stop creating? Like never. And I, you know, I took part in a symposium recently of indigenous theologians and what I found so beautiful as they were kept talking about how there is one God, but there are so many ways and languages and cultural ways to bring worship and connection to God. And I think that I didn't, I didn't grow up with that view. I grew up with, we have to be in this type of setting with these types of songs, with these types of, Yamaha stamped approved instruments and never shall there be anything else, you know? Um, and the first time I stood in a service where an indigenous woman drummed or opening and sang, I fell apart in a million ways because up until that point, I still felt um, that childhood fear of indigenous drumming conjuring bad spirits. And uh, although it had been something that had been challenging in myself for a while, it wasn't until I stood there and in the context of worship, she started drumming and singing and I cried and I cried for three days because we were at a retreat and she hugged me back together and um, began walking with me to understand how colonized my perception of God was and how God is not a colonizer. God's a creator um, and there's plenty where there's creativity. There's, there is no lack and there is no 
boundaries where God says, yeah, um, that language, I don't want to hear it when, when we're in worship. And that form of dance, nope, that's going to conjure the devil and not me. That's garbage. And I think that I'm, Karina knows I'm trying not to use bad words because we're at church, but I, it's big feelings. Yes. <laughs> and so um, it's just such garbage. And it's in participating in my culture and in the culture of other people also that I'm finding freedom yeah. to see God worshipped in many ways. So it's not just participating in in indigenous culture um my husband does a community volunteerism and they were invited to go to a mosque for a celebration so they went and he came back and shared the teachings and the community and the beauty of their form of worship also and in that we had a conversation about expansive worship that um, brought more freedom and so you'll see well i don't know right here behind me this is my smudging stuff smell a bowl that's my sage mm -hmm. Um, I smudge in prayer daily. Um, almost looked this apartment on fire yesterday. Um, <laughs> good thing about right there. <laughs> um, big prayers, big things going on. Yeah. But you know, in the bio, in biblical context, they talk about offering and smoke and incense. And somehow, when it's sweet grass that we're burning, it's going to conjure the devil. Well, that's not true. We can drum, we can sing, we can dance. Jigging can be a form of worship. Like smudging is a form of worship. When I smudge, I pray that the spirit of God will come over me, that my ears will be open, that my eyes will be open, that my mouth will speak his words, that my heart will be filled with his love and compassion for all humanity. Mm -hmm. That is not the work of the devil. That is holy work that mm -hmm. Jesus came to show us the way in. Yeah, that's great. I think um, when we talk about being equal in our differences, this is one of the best places where we can begin to practice that, you know, where like um, the thing about differences is that you're allowed to like one difference more than another. Like if holy rolling down the aisles is what brings life and flourishing for you, you can love that. But what we don't get to do is elevate that as better over smudging or better over kneeling in prayer or you know like and i think that is um we don't get to say that the different we like is better than someone else's and and i love being how how you have done that so on that note maybe we can get into the first we're gonna wrap things just a really little bit here on um allyship before we open if there's any additional questions um, maybe you could talk about the difference between appropriation versus appreciation. Because someone might hear like, oh, smudging, maybe I could try that. Or um, what about Indigenous, you know, beading? I know that beading is a big thing in, in, um, in at least where you are, in Métis culture there and whatever it might be. Can you maybe talk to us a little bit about the difference between appropriating which is like i think the idea with that is just it's like taking something and saying this is mine now versus appreciating which saying this i love this how do i love this and have it in my life without causing more harm which is kind of a general yeah. ally person, I think. so appropriation happens when you attempt 
to take ownership or profit from another culture. And we, I mean, our Westernized culture does this very well and very frequently with all manners of people. And so it's hard to, to know where to start with that. I would start with appreciation is awesome. Buy artwork, wear the jewelry, participate in seminars, learn how to smudge, ask questions. All of those things are so important. But just make sure it's authentic, that you're buying Indigenous artwork from an actual Indigenous person and not someone who learned from someone. And I would also say that just because an Indigenous person taught you something doesn't make it yours to sell and manufacture. Um, they shared it with you to share community, not to help you make money. Um, I just, it's my one of my big pet peeves, and we see it a lot here. Um, but if I teach you how to bead, bead your face off and then give those things away. Don't sell them. Um, if an Indigenous person teaches you how to smudge, buy your supplies from an Indigenous person. Don't go to Urban Barn or whatever and buy your sage. Like, participate in the growing of community in the Indigenous way. Um I would just say you need just to be really mindful about where things are coming from and your intent behind doing it. And um, if it's coming from a heart of appreciation and inclusion and celebration of another culture and you're paying the more money to do the more authentic thing, then you're good. But if you're going to dollar store to buy a dream catcher, I'm telling you, you're not engaged in appreciation. That's really good. Thanks for that. Um, so then I guess the, the question off of that is, how do we as individuals and as a community practice good allyship, which is, you know, how do we support? How do we help? How do we do all the things that would be helpful without creating more harm? And if we do harm, what's, what do we do? I love this question. It really is one of my favorites. Um, to be a good ally, you need to start opening your mind and showing up places, even if you're uncomfortable. So I'm not sure um, culturally what the nations in BC do celebration-wise. I know that much like here, a lot of the celebrations and ceremony were outlawed for a very long time. Yeah. And so... Um, if you're invited to a ceremony or celebration, show up. Even if you're super nervous and you think you're going to do everything wrong, I promise you, you're going to do everything wrong. They'll laugh at you, but they'll love that you're there. Um, I had to learn that again. I went to Powell as a kid and then for years didn't. And so we started taking our kids and I was like sweating nervous the first time we went because I didn't want to offend or hurt or do the wrong thing. And what has been such a gift out of returning to Powell is the community, the laughter, the joy, the teasing, the uncles and aunties, and the little rivalry, the celebration of our culture, but also of our humanity comes out of those. So show up at celebrations. If, if a community is advertising that they're having one and it's open to all, that means all. Like go there and eat the food, sit with the people, chat, um, ask how to do it right. They will let you know. Um, I went to my first sacred fire um, a couple weeks ago. 
I didn't know what the heck I was doing, but we have a woman named Grandma Shin Goose here who's a matriarch uh, in the Métis community, and she met me at the edge of the fire and brought me in and showed me what to do and was gentle and loving and kind and so glad that I wanted to be there. Um, so showing up, reading and watching and learning and hearing and believing, you can all do from the comfort of your coach. Amazon actually has a ton of really good Indigenous content APTN, watch APTN instead of another news channel. Start watching Indigenous news and see the stories that they're telling and um, celebrate those things. There are a few different news publications online that share Indigenous news. Go there. On an active level, start getting involved in your local levels of government and demanding better from them. So while a lot of our policies in Canada when you read them, it was, they don't sound too bad, but it is actually the budgeting and funding behind them that is incredibly racist. We're talking about CFS. In Manitoba, 95% of the budget. Yes, child and family. Yeah, sorry. I know it's called different places. So child and family services. In Manitoba, about 95% of the budget goes towards foster families and only 5% to reunification. That is a racist policy. Right. If they really wanted to keep families together, those numbers should be switched because foster families are getting support that isn't offered to birth families. And we need to balance those types of things out. So demanding a more fair level of funding is important. Um, in, Man- in Winnipeg, we have a lot of new developments being built in the suburbs. They're shutting down inner city programs, community centers, pools, parks, to find opening those in the suburbs. That's a racist policy because we know here in Winnipeg, the majority of our urban indigenous population lives in the inner city area. So those kids whose families can't afford private anything are now losing their public right. activities. Right. And those are going to suburbs. So learn about what's happening in your city. Challenge your city councillors on how they're spending money and the way they're dividing it up and the way that what their priorities are in their budgets on a provincial level, ask about your, your child and family services, ask how it's funded, ask how kids in care are given supports. Their families are given supports for trauma counseling and um, for reunification and for parent, not just parent courses, but parent mentorship. Um, And on a federal level, hold your MPs accountable for how they vote and how they, um, uh, write their bills in relation to the unceded territory in your province and the resources that are devoted to caring for Indigenous people globally. The way that it's funded through the government, that's why we still have more than 60 reserves in Canada. It's not just without good drinking water, it's without potable water. Kids are getting terrible rashes and skin conditions from being bathed in toxic water. Their skin is sloughing off. So it's not just a cup of water to drink. They can't bathe and they can't clean themselves. Wow. One of the videos that I sent to you, um, the home to me video, that group of students comes from a reserve in Ontario that their water has mercury poisoning because of the pulp and paper mill that's downriver from them. They have fought for years. This group of students drove to Ottawa to show up in question period 
when their MP was asking about help. And then they were thrown out because they all had T-shirts that says water is sacred. And that was considered signs. Hmm. And, you know, that's in the gallery. Right. So they made the thousands kilometer trek and then were tossed out. But they continue to fight and they continue to ask for more and demand for more from their government. And so those are some of the real tangible things you can do. If there is a walk, a protest, a march, show up. It's not enough that just brown faces show up. All of us need to demand more from our communities. Yeah, that's great. And what is the best path when we realize we've guffed it? Like we've been invited into a community and then took over or we assumed something and turns out we were wrong or those kind of things when or, or like we we feel overwhelmed with grief when we just have that moment where oh my gosh like we let this happen how do we participate well in allyship with in in those moments this is gonna sound super harsh but don't take your white tears into an indigenous community that's mourning sit in your car and cry and then get yourself together before you rejoin Mm. Um, there is enough grief and emotional weight that they don't need to carry your baggage either Um, if you're in relationship with someone and you're crying with them that's different but if you're showing up at one of these things and then falling apart don't um it's an unfair weight to put on the community that is actually experiencing the grief. Um, you ask a couple different things there. Like if you're going in, if you want to help and you want to, you want to be actively involved in supporting movements or communities, absolutely show up, but release your need for efficiency. Um, release your need for, um, the Western way of time and structure. Mm. I can just walk alongside what is already happening there. A good thing is happening. Just ask how they would like help or how can you serve? Um, I just was, I was invited to do a conversation like this with a community on Vancouver Island. And um, they were talking about how inefficient the food bank on the reserve is run. And I'm like, Mm-hmm. Not your business. Like your business is to stand there and offer loaves of bread, not to restructure everything because it seems inefficient, inefficient to you, but their inefficiency there may offer time for relationship and conversation and autonomy in your shopping experience that you don't get from a food bank normally. Um, that's another thing I would encourage you if you're involved in a food bank to stop running it like a handout station and set it up more like a shopping experience because that, that teaches responsibility. It gives opportunity for autonomy. It gives dignity to the experience. Um, how would you like it if you walked into a grocery store and they gave you what you're allowed to have, whether you need it or not? Nobody else in the country has to deal with that, but in the food bank situations, that's what they're given. And so, I would encourage you, if you're involved in one, to start having conversations about how can we walk people through and help them learn how to meal plan and 
choose groceries that would be appropriate for their family. That's great. Okay, well, we have, this is, this is a uh, time. I think we need to call time because it would be great if we had like a few minutes here for a couple questions. So maybe we'll go, if there's a question, uh, you can move us on to gallery view if you want. Um, and uh, if there are any questions, maybe clarity on something. Um, oh, there, yes. Um, we don't have time for like really in-depth questions, but do remember there's gonna be resources that we're gonna have. And uh, we're just part of, this is just part of a continuing education for, for our community. And, and the goal is, um, Nicole, you were saying when we were talking about this, like just one, do one thing more. Like if you haven't read a book, read a book. If you haven't watched a movie, watch a movie. And if you've got a certain amount of education, maybe show up at your first first protest or something, something like that. Um, just take one step more. So just take a deep breath in, relax your shoulders, release the tension and the weight of knowing and just sit for a moment. Know that while you have a responsibility as a witness, you bear no guilt. That we are all free and loved and valued and we're all looking for a good way forward. Creator God, I thank you for this space. I thank you that you dreamed up relationship and sacred humanity and connection and that your dream for us is to live in harmony where we each play our notes in connection and complement to one another. I thank you that you have given us the tools we need to live in this harmony. And I pray that you will give us the strength to use those tools in a good way. I pray that you remove fear from our hearts and prejudice from our minds and allow each one of us to walk into relationship with one another with open hearts and your dream for humanity in front of our eyes. I pray that we will all be good allies, good brothers and sisters, good neighbors and good friends as we learn to grieve and celebrate together. Thank you for being in both spaces, in the grieving and in the celebration, mm -hmm. in the tradition and in the new. I thank you that you're continually creating new paths forward and together. I thank you for your son, for the hope and the healing and the joy that comes from knowing Jesus. Thank you that we can know that he walked these roads of pain and suffering and truth and reconciliation also. And that he is with us. I pray as we each go forward into our days ahead that um, your truth and love 
surround us and inform our conversations and our interactions. We just pray for our land that healing will come and trauma will be recognized and respected and given space to heal. Pray for our children and their lives, that they will know the truth of their value and how precious they are to us. Jesus, be near to all of us. In your name, amen. Amen. Thanks, everybody, for being with us. Thank you, Nicole, for being with us. Uh, you are loved, and you're wonderful, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>